Kai was definitely there. <laughs> New Testament reading is from Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will, no, there will be no more night. There will not need, they will not need the light of the, or the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. One of the things that people tell you when you are starting to have children is uh, how expensive they are, and you, you never believe them, at least not believe them to the extent that you should. Whatever figure you hear, you just kind of multiply it by any numeral above three or four, and then you'll kind of get the picture. We underestimate how expensive kids are, especially as they grow older, and we have older kids now, 19 down to 12. And our kids continue to amaze us by getting more and more expensive. And one of the things that uh, has helped us in our budget is the fact that we, we don't really buy clothes for them. Now, they, they wear clothes, they have clothes, but for the most part, the older kids, we don't buy clothes for them. They pretty much do their own shopping, and they shop at thrift stores, they shop at Goodwill, they shop even at these shady warehouses out by the airport that they call the bins because literally there are just piles and piles of clothing in big bins, and you buy clothing by the pound. And so particularly my daughter, Abby, who's quite embarrassed at the moment, brings home clothes and garbage bags. So we don't have to spend a lot of money to keep them clothed. Now, they would probably look like hobos in most parts of the country, but in Portland, they look perfect. They fit in. And when we moved here about 10 years ago from Silicon Valley, I was overdressed. I had kind of the, the corporate look going on, you know, a little Banana Republic and some Gap and so forth. And I took a, a bunch of my supposedly nice clothes down to Buffalo Exchange and I was expecting this huge credit because I carried in a gigantic box of clothes that I'd spent money on, and they didn't take anything, like nothing. And it was, felt like the walk of shame leaving Buffalo Exchange. It just felt like the Charlie Brown music, the, the Peanuts theme where he's always sad and they use an arrested development just falling on their face. That's what I felt like was playing. I just felt so sad that no one wanted my clothes. It was a terrible moment in my life. Well, we think differently about fashion and clothing here in Portland. We're a little bit less bling, a little bit less brand conscious. 
maybe we care too much about showing that we don't care about what we wear. But it can be refreshing, right, to just pick a style, pick clothing that is you, that you're comfortable in, that you like, and just wear that. And don't feel like you're having to meet this dress code that's enforced across the city. Now, clothes are an extension of who you are. And that's possible here, I think, a little bit more possible in Portland maybe than in other places, that we are dressing as an extension of who we are rather than what we think other people want us to be and how they want us to look. And last week we looked at Galatians, and Paul is describing this alternative society where people look different, and they're okay with it. They look different from those outside the church and different from those within, that they're not constantly being sized up by what they wear, by what they have on, by the shape of their body, by the size of their body, or even how much they have tried to communicate in their outfit that they don't care what they look like. This is obviously an aspirational type of description of this community. It's idealized. But what he told us is that everyone in this context, the way that it can be an alternative community is that everyone is clothed with Christ, that that's their primary way of moving through the world, that that's what they see as their external presentation of themselves is that they are clothed with Jesus Christ. Now, the metaphor, if you were paying attention during the reading, is different uh, in Genesis. In Genesis, the picture of the church is an alternative society, but it's, the metaphor is that it's a garden, the garden we know as Eden. And this is meant to be this archetype of goodness and of beauty, that this is the perfect creation. This is how God meant the world to be. And the church then gets kind of conflated with that later in Scripture as a means of describing what the church is to be. But then we read of this tragic choice that is made. And Adam and Eve are kind of this archetypal humanity where they are the ones that bring ugliness into this beautiful place, where they fracture the brokenness, and they are, they are forced out of this perfected, idealized reality. And as they're forced out of paradise, this sense of foreboding kind of darkness settles in because we're reading with hindsight, and we know the way that the world is, and we see in their choices some of the choices that we make. And it's this foreboding sense that we'll never get back there because did you notice what guards the entrance or what would be the exit in this case? The re-entrance to the garden is two flaming swords as if to say to get back into the garden requires death. You can't do it. You will be killed if you attempt to go back into the garden. Now, in our religious mindset and the religious mindset of the day, that's sort of what we would expect. You break the rules, you pay the price. But God does something that no one would have expected of God. They defy Him, and while certainly there are consequences, the expulsion, the flaming swords and whatnot, 
this is not the end of the story. God does what no one would expect of them. He doesn't, of him. He doesn't wash his hands of them. I'm done with you, you foul people, but he goes to find them. And we've talked about this almost each week because it totally changes the complexion of the story and the way that we read it, that he goes and with compassion and tenderness seeks to clothe them in their nakedness. And he begins also to restore the world that they now inhabit. As I said, often we focus on the wrong things when we read the Bible, and especially when we read narrative types of parts of Scripture like this. And we begin to ask primarily, it's not wrong to ask, but what we are most interested in is, well, when did this happen? And where was the Garden of Eden? And who were Adam and Eve? And now that we know so much about genetics, is the writer really saying that they are not only our spiritual but our genealogical parents? Well, that just isn't right. And we end up in these sort of round and around debates that are interesting and they're not unworthy, but we fixate upon the wrong things. We fixate even upon Adam and Eve and their actions, which kind of connects us with them, right? What is this about us? We want to know how we fit into the story, and so we fixate upon the actions of humanity rather than upon the actions and the response of God. And that is what sets up the rest of the Bible, not primarily the fall and the implications and how sinful and dreadful was this action, that is part of the story, no doubt. And the Bible does tell the story of the sinfulness of mankind. But the setup for the rest of the Bible, the main thing that Genesis provides isn't how preposterously depraved and deranged humanity is, but it's the response of God, His his prodigal love, that in this very first moment, this insurrection happens with cosmic implications, and God responds with compassion, and He goes and tenderly seeks them out. He pursues the very ones that have made a mess of His household. And this, of course, is revisited time and time again, most classically with Jesus as He talks about the prodigal son narrative, this younger son who goes and spends everything his dad has. And the only reason that the parable takes place is because the prodigal son returns, not because he's repentant, not because he's sorry for everything that he's done, but why? Because he's hungry. Because the pigs eat better in his dad's house than what he's been eating, and he wants to eat. And what does Jesus tell us? The father's response is, well, the father runs out to meet him. And not only that, he runs out to embrace him. He throws a party, and what does he do? He clothes him. Call back to Genesis. He puts a robe around him. And you see, sometimes we get this idea in sort of the pop theology of our day that God, the Father, is this stern, angry, kind of judgy, gray-haired man and he's really not so happy with us. He lets us live in, our, in his house, and he pays our bills, but he's kind of like the stereotypical 50s dad. He's remote. He's distant. He's happy to tell you about all the things you've done wrong. But if you want a hug, you've got to go to mom. 
And that's how we sort of bifurcate God the Father and Jesus. He's sort of the cool big brother that takes the wrath of dad so that this younger brother doesn't have to. But the picture that the Bible paints is Trinitarian, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together for the redemption of humanity, that they are so endlessly in love with humanity that they go and find us, that they seek us out. The story begins with God leaving a garden to rescue his people. And then we fast forward, and the Jesus that told us the parable of the lost son, we see him in the Gospels praying where? In a garden, in Gethsemane. And here it's not Eve, but it's Judas who's listening to the voice of the serpent and who betrays Jesus. And so Jesus leaves the garden, and he exits. And there's so much going on here. And I wrote so much last night, earlier this week is when I wrote my sermon. I wrote so much that I cut and pasted it because I feel like so much of this is going to be great for Palm Sunday and Easter, so you'll just have to kind of put a pin in it. But he walks down from this garden, and he goes to this despoiled city, Jerusalem, to rescue it. He's walking the path. You see that God has always walked. He's walking God's love for humanity from the garden down into Jerusalem. He's always, God always is moving towards the fractured and the lonely and the culturally and spiritually naked, and He's calling them friends, and He's putting a robe on them. He's clothing them. He comes to the temple, and we read this famous story about Him throwing over the tables because who is not allowed to worship because they're occupying the space, the Gentiles, the religiously despised and ostracized. And he tells the religious leaders, those that are presumed to be at the top of the heap, these are the people God has come for. And he tells them, oh, by the way, tax collectors and prostitutes will be first in the kingdom before you. And then the blind and the lame come, and he heals them. And that's his demonstration of the kingdom, of the church, of what God has been up to since Adam and Eve had their insurrection and walked out of the garden. This is what God is trying to remake, and it's a very embodied type of ministry. And it deals with some of our most base fears. Am I seen? Do people really see the real me? Will I be rejected? Jesus comes to answer that question. He comes in a body to heal broken bodies. And these healings, friends, they are to the fractured reality of Eden. They're to the fractured bodies of Adam and Eve. These healings are water running uphill. It's the reverse of everything that went wrong. These are signs of the curse, the brokenness of the world, the fractured world being healed. And it takes him being fractured. It takes him being broken. It takes him being stripped naked. He goes to the cross naked, just as Adam and Eve were, which brings us back to where we started, 
the issue of clothing, the issue of being seen, the issue of shame. The ways that we make our way in the world, the way that we make our meaning and our identity based upon externalities, based upon clothing, based upon thinness, fatness, fitness, so that people think what we want them to think of us. Now, I kind of geek out about all of the literary elements and the callbacks. Speaking of arrested development, there's more callbacks in the Bible than you can imagine. It's amazing. And I kind of geek out about it, but there's a reason that we're looking at these passages, and there's a reason I think that we're doing this in this series, because Jesus comes to clothe us. He comes to put His Father's robe upon us. And this clothing, instead of obscuring the real us, it actually allows the real us to come out and to flourish. The person that we were made to be, the return to the innocence of Adam and Eve, to the goodness of humanity, because humanity starts with inherent goodness. And it allows us, His clothing, being clothed with Jesus allows us to live out of this complicated truth about us, this sometimes contradictory truth of who we are, this recapturing the true humanity and being open, represented in Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed, it requires, first of all, sort of counterintuitively, that we be honest about how fractured and about how sinful we can be. That evil is actually far more than just failing to live up to the moral code. Evil is far more situated deep in who we are than just that we break the rules sometimes. One of Flannery O'Connor's best character is Hazel Motes, who is a kind of a weird church planter because he's planting a church without Christ. He basically is trying to prove the whole book that he doesn't believe any of this nonsense. He's in the South in a very religious culture. And he says he doesn't believe, but he's a very spiritually haunted fellow, as most Flannery O'Connor characters are. And he drives past this sign in this beat-up car. And on, in huge letters, is painted, and if you drive through the South, these types of signs are there now. Uh, and he drives by the sign that says, Woe to the blasphemer and whoremonger! Will hell swallow you up? Question mark. Large print. And then down at the bottom, in small print, Jesus saves. And it's just got this Flannery O'Connor-esque humor to it. But he stops in traffic to ponder this sign. And he says, there's no person, a whoremonger, who wasn't something worse first. This leader, this pastor of the church without Christ is a very good theologian. There's no person, a whoremonger, who wasn't something worse first. That's not the sin, whoremongering that is, nor blasphemy. The sin came before then. And it's kind of obvious, isn't it, isn't it when we read the story of Adam and Eve, that the sin isn't actually taking the fruit and eating of the fruit, but it's the assertion 
of self. It's the distrust of God's inherent goodness that what underlies all of our sin, our moral failure, is a sin that is much more deep. And it's a cosmic insurrection. It's a cosmic despoiling of creation. And that's why Adam and Eve were pushed out. You have despoiled this goodness I've given you. You've despoiled yourself. And that's the doctrine of sin that we get in Genesis. It's not this total depravity, total deranged type of thing, but it's more complicated picture. It's despoiled, fractured goodness. And when we own that, that what's wrong with the world, I am, we own that as a fundamental part of us. It paradoxically allows us to move through the world with greater honesty without being over-concerned and over-fixated upon our everyday failures and every time that we blow it. We move through the world already aware of how deeply fractured we are, aware of our sinfulness and fallenness that's far deeper than our behavior. And so we don't find ourselves over time obsessing about our failure and our behavior, but we find ourselves meditating on how deep is the love of God that He put His robe on me. Evil runs far more deeply than does just my daily failure. In a sense, what can we do about it anyway except give ourselves over to God and let Him fix what is broken? You see, cosmic Insurrection is only fixed by resurrection, by cosmic resurrection, by Jesus Himself. And at some level, wellness, wholeness comes by being okay with our humanity, that we walk through the world understanding this very negative truth about who we are, that we are cosmic insurrectionists. And when someone challenges us, when someone tries to shame us, or we try to shame ourselves, we can respond with, you really don't know the half of it. You don't know the half of it. And we can acknowledge without being defensive. Two more things and we'll finish. United with Adam's humanity, but also, as we've been saying, united to Christ's divinity, clothed with Christ, not with His garments, but with His person with his value, with his worth, with his identity, with his very being. That is what you are clothed with if you are in him. And in the same way that appropriate clothing allows us to move into varying environments with safety, if you have the right jacket and clothing, you can live in cold environments and vice versa. Jesus clothing us with his love allows us to live in hostile environments and to be centered, and to be safe. Not just better fig leaves, but transformation. And Jesus' work is not shielding us from God's penetrating gaze. He's not the good one that is keeping the bad one at bay, but He is transforming us from the inside, and He is restoring the divine image He's actually walking humanity back through the eastern gate of the garden. It's this beautiful image. And how does Jesus defeat the flaming swords? Not with a bigger sword, but by dying, 
by letting the swords fall on him. And then finally, friends, quickly, because this new life, being clothed with Jesus, takes shape not simply in individual lives but in a community, the church becoming a garden, the garden that was and also becoming a city, the city that will be, Revelation 21 says the city, the new Jerusalem comes down to heal the despoiled city. And so the future state is not disembodied beings floating on clouds. Who wants that? But it's a renewed, beautiful, good creation, which has a garden. Did you see that? And it also has a river that runs through it, just as Eden did. And the church is meant to approximate. It will never duplicate. It's meant to approximate what is true about that garden as it once was and about the city as it will be. And the church is meant to bring lives into proximity with that reality, with what it means to be in real fellowship with God and real fellowship with other people who share the same clothing that you do, that minimizes the difference, that allows for great external diversity. And this practiced, embodied compassion for one another, this practice embodied wearing the clothing of Christ as our most representational part of who we are, it leads to this dual honesty that we often see insurrection alive in our own hearts, in our own lives, and we recognize how we make our way through the world living up to whatever standards we think it's imposing upon us, and that becomes our identity. We recognize that. And yet at the same time, contra to that, we say, I am a divine image bearer. I carry around not just kind of somewhere inside, but as my whole person, the love of God. And so what my body looks like, whether I'm growing old and losing ground against the ever-changing beauty standards, whether my clothing is out of style, whether you're thin or fat or getting thin or exercising or not, or your face is droopy and your body just doesn't look right, that's not what is most important about you what you carry inside you and on you that's infused in you is God's image and His commissioning to bring that truth to others that you and I are made to be beautiful by the ugliness of Jesus' death. And then we can begin to approximate. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more pain and death or mourning or crying for the old order of things has passed away. Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, we pray that more and more this would be our story, not just individually, but as people of in-town, that this would be a church that finds its meaning, its identity, its beauty in you, not what we say about ourselves, but what you say about us. And we pray that we would embody that as we come to this table and as we live into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to confession, if you are um, willing and able, we stand for confession of our faith to prepare us as we come forward that this is an embodied 
response to the gospel. It's an embodied way of 